We'll now hear the, the reading from Psalm 27, which has been recorded by Sarah Hodges. my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to defile me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Good morning all. Nice to see you all on this chilly, fresh, crisp morning. I'm sure it's colder in here than it is outside. But uh, still, we'll do what we can. We'll sing even louder in the next hymn to keep you uh, nice and warm. I'll try and be brief as well. I'm really shivering, I think. Um, welcome to the third part in this series. It struck me as a bit strange, to be honest. The third part in the series called The One Thing. Um, so this is the third one thing. or the th Yeah, it's the third thing, but the one thing. So um, this obviously isn't, there isn't just one thing. Okay, We wouldn't need a whole book. Would we? we wouldn't need 66 books in here if it was uh, just one thing. But we can boil these truths down, I think, into one thing. And in fact, these... these Messages in the Bible can be thought of to give us one key message, I think, um, at a time, which is good. Uh, we don't get too lost. Um, but unfortunately, life is not that simple, is it? Each of the messages in this series will focus on one thing from a different person's life. All are good, and ultimately, if you look at all these as a whole, they overlap. Just wondering, um, what's the one thing you desire? We've just had Christmas, haven't we? I don't know if anything like my house. Uh, three small children at home. There was never just one thing. It was not just one thing to eat or one thing on the Christmas list. It was a whole lot of things. It was uh, one thing after another, unfortunately. Um, things just get in the way, though, don't they? Um, I don't know if you had the same experience as me, maybe getting too ambitious doing the laundry. 
Claire's looking at me thinking, yeah, right. But when you fill that laundry basket and you kind of pile all your clothes into it, you walk to the laundry, the machine, what is it called? The washing machine, that's the thing. <laughs> you can tell I'm good at this. And you, you put it all in the machine, you think, great, I've done a good thing. And then you walk back into the house and it's just a trail of socks behind you. You think, oh, good. too much stuff gets in the way and we end up losing stuff as we go, don't we? But we're going to try and whittle this down to just one thing. David managed to do it. David, the powerful king, managed to do it. And he managed to do it in this passage. Ooh, that was the wrong button. Is it that one? Yes, there we go. So first off, I want to look at, really, with this psalm, he, he goes through a lot here. I get really nervous with the psalms, I've got to say, that um, they are not very poetic. I'm not very music-oriented, and they are just a series of songs and poems, aren't they? So it's a little bit out of my depth, perhaps. But it says, The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This whole thing starts as a list of situations he's found himself in. But he can be broken, breaking this down into really uh, this, these statements. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, though an army besiege me, though war break out against me. How's your week been? Uh, we've, we've had all sorts of fun games this week. Uh, my son tested positive for COVID. Uh, so we've had all sorts of joys with childcare, trying to juggle that. Then my car broke down on Friday. It's, it's been a nightmare. But I've got to say, when I look at David's week, or David's life at this point in his, his uh, journey, he's having a bad time, isn't he? When the wicked advance to devour me, though an army besiege me, though war break out against me, I've got to say that's never happened to me. But I think... David does the right thing. He starts off this whole psalm. He couches what he's going to say in this truth. And the very, very beginning couple of sections, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Do you know what? That's the first thing David starts with. And I think it's the, if that's the first thing that we can start with, then everything else surely will fall into place. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold of my life. And then he goes on, he's able to say, and he kind of turns this around, he's having this conversation with himself almost, look, what, what terrible thing's happening. But actually, God's in control. And he starts saying, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? It is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. My heart will not fear. Even then, I will be confident. Now, David lived 500 BC, there or thereabouts. Life wasn't easy back then. And I know he was a king. I know he was a wealth, wealthy, powerful man. But he had big problems to deal with. Like David's life didn't get easier because he believed in God, but he was able to stand firm with God's help. And this is what helps him to say, the one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. If I was having a time like that, when wars were waged against me, when armies were trying to take me down, I don't know what I pray. And I hope I'm never in that situation to find out. But it would have been easy to think of, oh, Lord, please, you know, defeat my enemies for me. Please, you know, I, I just want happiness. I just want a nice time. I just want a nice life. No. He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Kind of tells you a lot about David's priorities, doesn't it? His priority wasn't for an easy life. His priority wasn't for riches and wealth and all this other stuff. He was chosen by God for that position. And he just wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. When David wrote this psalm, like I say, about 500 BC, um, the temple of Jerusalem was still standing and the Ark of the Covenant, we think, was still there. But I don't think David wanted to live there. 
I'm not sure, I'm not, no historian, but uh, I'm pretty sure that temples in those times, and certainly houses, most houses, wouldn't have been that comfortable. I don't think he was literally talking about wanting to live in the temple of the Lord. I'm sure if he wanted to, he could have, he had the power. But David was so enraptured by God, he simply wanted to dwell in his presence, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. As I say nearly, these, these songs and these poems, I don't know about you, whenever you read any of the Bible, to be honest, but certainly the Psalms. Do you ever get that kind of feeling where music starts playing in the back of your head? Tell me it's not just me. Just some nods. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. All the time. It's good, isn't it? And sometimes it's hymns that are brought to mind. And you think, oh, that reminds me. And you start hymn, singing them sort of subliminally almost. You kind of, what, why am I thinking that? Oh, that's why I'm thinking of that. And when I was reading this, I started singing the song in my head. Uh, you know, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That old, I love that song. Look in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you know that song? It was stuck in my head for days when I read that. And actually, it was written by Helen Howarth Lemel uh, in about 1922. It's a proper oldie. And you know, she was an amazing hymn writer, an amazing singer by all accounts. And she taught um, singing at the Moody Bible Institute in America, even though she was born in, in Britain to, fit, uh, to start. But actually, the more I dug around this, she's got a fascinating life. I'd encourage you to look her up. But when you start digging around her life, she um, didn't have things easy. And in the end, she actually went blind. She got some kind of illness and, and lost her sight completely. She was completely and totally blind. And only then did she think of writing this song, if the counts were to be believed. She was blind. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. She couldn't see anything but look in his wonderful face. And for her, the earth, things of earth did grow strangely dim, but for her, the worries of the earth grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And from there, I started singing another song. And I won't sing it to you, because it's just not something you need to hear this morning. But uh, it's a newer song, but I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. And I, may, I imagine when David sat down to write this psalm, I can imagine that he was kind of, he had this, maybe not those songs, obviously not those songs in his head, but he had that kind of feeling, that kind of bubbling up praise to start with. When he sit down and think, right, what shall I write? Ah, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I'll start there. It says a lot about his priorities. Do you know what? Um, I've quoted him before, and I will keep quoting him. He's an incredible author um, and an amazing speaker by all accounts. But uh, A.W. Tozer, Aidan Tozer, uh, said, the most dangerous trap is just living and forgetting that God exists. I think that's right, isn't it? I think that's what David had in mind here. He wasn't forgetting that God exists. In fact, he was desperate to not forget God exists. I don't know about you, but when you're in work or when you're doing your day-to-day -day routine, isn't it easy to forget God? I work in a school, I'm a teacher, and I can't pretend for one minute that when I'm teaching lessons in school, at the forefront of my mind is God and what I'm doing. I'd love it to be. I, I truly want my, my purpose, my vision in school is to, to be a servant of God and do, do what he wants me to do to reach children in whatever capacity I can, but I can't pretend for a minute that the forefront of my mind, I'm, I'm focused on what I'm doing, the task in hand it is all-consuming for me at least. Tozer, again, I, I, another incredible character. I was reading around his biography, and this quote leapt out at me. It said, his countenance was stern, but his sense of humor was warm. His mind was steel and his rhetoric sharp, but these only made him a gifted man. It was his deep devotion, his abiding dependence on the Spirit, his painstaking attention to the beauty of Christ that made him a servant of God. 
his painstaking attention to the beauty of Christ. And I think that's what David is showing us here. His painstaking attention to the beauty of Christ. Obviously, David was before Jesus' time, but he was looking forward to the Messiah's coming. He knew the beauty of God, and he knew that he needed to spend his time dwelling on the things of God. Tozer would get to his office earlier, uh, before anybody else, uh, wherever his office was, possibly in the church he was speaking. And he'd take with him um, another pair of trousers. Back in the days when you'd wore a, wear a suit everywhere, I guess. And he'd take another pair of trousers in his bag, and as soon as he got to the office, he'd change trousers into his scruffy old pair of trousers. Because he'd spend the first part of his day praying. And he just wanted to commit everything he was going to do. He wanted to seek and hear from God. So he'd start on his couch that he had in his, his office, by all accounts. And he'd start praying. And he'd wear the, tr- the old trousers because he knew by the end of his sometimes three-hour prayer time, he'd end up on his knees with his face buried in the carpet. There was a man with his priorities right. Tozer got what David's saying here. And in fact, on his tombstone, or his headstone, uh, if you go and see it somewhere in America, I think in Ohio somewhere, but it just simply says, A.W. Tozer, man of God. What a legacy to leave. What a life to live. So wrapped up in the beauty of God, that that's what people remember about you. Man of God. But like I say, with the best will in the world, we can't keep our mind on all things at all time. I was talking to a friend years and years ago, and uh, they were talking about uh, the police driving course. I'm trying not to catch Yale's eye, because I'm sure she's got similar training, so I'm, if I'm wrong, Yale, tell me after. But he was saying that, uh, no, driving at 140 mile an hour down the road is no problem at all, easy peasy. I'm thinking, what? Okay, fine, yeah, I believe you. But sometimes when you're driving, you get caught up, don't you, about what's that car doing there? What's happening here? And you kind of focus on the road ahead. And they were saying, no, 140 mile an hour, 150 mile an hour, not a problem. All you've got to do is look off in the distance. Keep your eyes up. Look where you're going. Because actually everything else on your peripheral vision, everything else will fall into place if you look where you're going. Because at that speed, you need to focus way, way ahead. I think that's the key to peace, isn't it? The key to joy. The key to living is not looking around you at the distractions that are going on around you at the time. It's not worrying about what's happening in your life at the time, although it's very easy to say and very difficult to do. But keep your eye way up ahead. Keep your eye fixed on the Lord. Keep him in your mind. Keep him at the forefront of your attention and everything else will fall into place. Now, the world is distra- determined to distract us from what's important in so many ways. Now, I say that in very careful words. I don't think, maybe it certainly was the case at one point, but there are many distractions that we can fall into spending our time in. And I think that there is this, this trap that we can fall into of, of getting distracted as we go along. But I think at the moment, the tide is turning. I think the world is determined to distract us from what is important. It's not just distractions that find us, it's distractions that were put in front of us for a purpose. I don't know how many of you, maybe I shouldn't admit this again with Claire being here, but when you've got that list of things to do and your laundry is sat there waiting to be taken to that machine that washes it, wherever it might be, and you think, oh, just check my phone for a minute. Just, just see what's going on in the world. And then half an hour later you think, laundry, no, she's going to be home soon. <laughs> I'm saying too much, aren't I, Claire? I'm glad you've got a mask on so I can't see your face. But uh, do you know what? Psychologists have looked into this over and over again. And I, I don't want to dwell on psychology. Obviously, the Bible is more important. But there's a guy called Maslow. Um, in teaching, uh, you hear about all these psychological theories, Bloom's taxonomy, Maslow's taxonomy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is what I fell into. Because actually, so can we make this a bit bigger? 
Sarakeen. Just because uh, this is kind of important to see. This is kind of what Maslow came up with, is what the world thinks we should be looking at, or at least what the world thinks we need. And it's based as a pyramid, because down at the bottom, we've got this really big base that's essential to the rest of the pyramid. And you can see there, look, it's talking about physiological needs. Food, water, uh, warmth, I wish, and rest. So this kind of list, if you don't have those, you can't go any further. Okay, there's no point. You're not going to survive. Then once you've got past that step, what's the next worry that we need to take care of? And then Maslow's talking about this in our everyday life now. And he says we need security. We need safety. I agree. That's a good thing to have. Um, and then after that, we need belongingness and relationships. Obviously not essential, not the, the foundational level, but actually very, very important to all humans. We need that friendship and that relationship with others. It's a really, really important thing to have. And then after that, once you've got your friends, then you can start working on your esteem, your self-worth. And then, and only then, and it used to be called this, in fact, before it was Maslow's taxonomy, it was self-actualization. Sounds like a cult, doesn't it? The self-actualization. Once you've done all these things and you've worked your way up this scheme, you get to the self-actualization. Basically, what it's talking about is your happiness. And at the top, once you've taken care of all the stuff you need, you can deal with the stuff you want, because you've got that firm foundation there. I'm not sure I agree. You'll be glad to hear. Do you know what? The world's got it all wrong. In Isaiah, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Nor are my ways, sorry, not a, nor are your ways my ways. For as long as, sorry, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is what I mean. We can get stuck in this worldly thinking, this idea that the world has got what we need, but actually that's completely upside down. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus shares these words with us. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is, li is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And this is what David was trying to tell us. He didn't say, oh, do you know what I really need? I need money. What I really need, oh, I'd love a banquet. He said, no, all I need is to spend time in God's presence, gazing at the beauty of the Lord. So if you could have this a little bit bigger again, sorry, James. I want to make this, um, this taxonomy. Let's, let's tweak this a little bit, shall we? Because actually, um, it's, it's completely wrong, quite frankly, based on what David's saying and what the rest of the Bible tells us. Uh, physiological needs, our food, our warmth, our breath. Do we need to worry? No, Jesus just told us the birds don't worry about it. So, right, God, done. Um, safety needs. What does the Bible tell us about our safety? Taken care of. God's done it. Belonging. Oh, here we go. Our belonging in the world. Who do we belong to? Who is the source of love and our love needs? Yep, you can see where this is going, can't you? Our esteem, where do we get our esteem, our self-esteem, our self-worth? No, absolutely not. Our self-actualization, I hope not. I don't want self-actualization. I want to be a servant of God. I want to be used by God. I want to be an extension of God's work on earth. So no, that goes as well. I think this whole taxonomy can be rewritten. There's no, just, just focus on God. Don't worry about this hierarchy of needs. It's all done for you. What the world says is important is power, prominence, and prestige. God says what's important is humility, compassion, and self-sacrifice. 
The will says it's important to have great wealth of knowledge. God says all that's important is to know him and enjoy him forever. The will says our self-worth is based on wealth, popularity, and status in the community. God says no. We're valued because of who we are, because he made us, not what we have or what we're able to do, but because God's love uh, loves us as his own. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Or do you believe what you hear on the social media, or on the TV, or on the radio, or in magazines, or wherever you get this, this, this world creeping into your, your thinking? Are you going to listen to the world and let the world dictate what you think, and what you think of yourself, and how you behave? Or are you going to listen to what God says and take your cues from the Bible and the teaching and example of Jesus. David wanted and yearned for total and absolute focus on God. He wanted this kind of taxonomy. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He knew that if he did that, everything else would be taken care of. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his secret secret tent. And he will set me high upon a rock. All he needs to do is keep his eyes on God. David was so important to God. God didn't need David. God doesn't need anything. But David was important to him. It says in Acts, Paul is telling us that um, he gives us a quick rundown of uh, a summary of the history of the Bible. And it's incredible. You should make sure you read it. Chapter 13. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. David didn't know this when he was 500 BC, looking forward to the the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus being born and the Messiah coming to earth and, and doing the work that we cannot do for ourselves, that Jesus being perfect would be killed, would be sacrificed for us so we can access God. But he was part of that plan. Not only was David hoping to see the fulfillment of that prophecy, he was part of that fulfillment of the prophecy. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Looking forward to God's fulfilled plan, but being part of the plan. In Luke, Luke chapter 2, do you remember the story when um, Jesus and Mary and Joseph were traveling and there were massive crowds around and that sickening feeling, I can just imagine how they felt that they'd lost Jesus. Do you remember that? It was like, where, where's he? Where, oh no, where has he gone? Have you had that feeling? If you've got kids, you almost certainly have. My children have done it to me a few times, usually hiding in the clothes rack in Marks and Spencers or once I found Lydia holding onto the mannequin. St- <laughs> literally stood in the display holding the mannequin's hand, pretending to be a mannequin. And I walked over, what are you doing? I love you, Daddy. Oh, my goodness, I'm replaced that easily. It was awful. <laughs> but he, when they find him, he says, look, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? How do they feel then? Oh, no, what was I thinking? How, how, just incredible. I wonder, if you were, <laughs> I don't know, it wouldn't be a Sunday morning in Bethel, would it, if I didn't mention at some point some kind of film. Um, so I've got to. Uh, I'm not suggesting you should watch this. I'm not endorsing this film in any way, shape, or form. But it's a film we watched recently. It's called Don't Look Up. Um, and <laughs> Don't Look Up is, is all about this young uh, scientist. She's a doctoral candidate, PhD candidate. And in her um, 
astrophysics or astro astronomical observations, she finds this new object in the sky. And she's like, oh, it's amazing. And this could be a Nobel Prize for it. This is going to make her reputation. And she finds this new thing, this new object in the heavens. And then they track it over time. And they start to see its path. And oh my goodness, they can work stuff out. They can work out how big it is. It's about 10 miles across. They can work out which way it's going. It's incredible. And then they continue the calculations. They think, oh, hang on a minute. Surely that can't be right. So they recheck their calculations, and they find out that, no, this massive asteroid, this massive comet, is on a direct collision course with Earth. And the whole, the whole film, not to spoil anything for you, if you're ever going to watch it, uh, is all about this team of scientists trying to persuade the world that you need to do something about this. They go to the president of America, they go to different governments, they go to NATO, goodness of what, and they're saying, look, you have to do something about this. We've got the calculations. This is going to happen. And the government, <laughs> in the only way that only America could in this film, um, says, no, rubbish, no, don't worry about it. They're just scientists, don't worry about it. This whole campaign starts up, and their slogan is, don't look up. Don't worry about what's coming, it'll be fine, it's, it's all good, just look at us, we're fine, we've got it all under control. And then all of a sudden, somebody looks up, and they see this thing, it's so close to Earth, they can see this object hurtling towards them, they go, oh, we were lied to, everybody look up. And that's my fear, I think of what's coming. The world is telling us, don't look to God. Don't look up. Don't worry about it. Get on your phone. Read the media. Listen to the radio. Watch TV a bit more. Have a, sit down and watch a film. Don't look up. And I think there is going to be a time when people say, oh no, we were wrong. Look up quick. And it may be too late. Do so you know what? David knew that even though he was looking forward to the promised Messiah, before the Holy Spirit had been given to believers, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that we know that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to believers, but actually David is living in a time way before then. Before there's anything to base his faith upon other than this prophecy. But you know what? We have access to the Savior. We are given the Holy Spirit. The world tries to distract us from this amazing fact. It makes everything else seem so pressing and urgent. But the only thing we have to worry about, the only have to, thing we have to focus on is Jesus. Another one of my favorite ministers that I love to listen to online, <laughs> on my phone, ironically, is uh, an amazing guy. I think the name says it all, Steve Lawson. What an upstanding character he must be. Um, he says, God is the source and author of truth. Sin is what God said it is. Judgment is what God says it is. Salvation is what God says it is. Heaven and hell are what God say they are. It matters not what man says, but simply what God says. One word of what God says is worth 10,000 libraries of what man says. Then he finishes with the words from Romans 3. Let God be found true and every man a liar. We hear this all the time in the Bible. And there are lots of instances of this kind of pattern going on, this kind of behavior. Like when Mary and Martha had Jesus around for food. Remember that story? Mary sat at the feet of Jesus instead of busying herself in the kitchen. But do you know what? She chose the better thing. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What's your one thing? What are you going to choose? All through the Bible there are stories of the often justifiable distractions of the world, but the message remains the same. Choose God. Choose what is better. 
Later on in this chapter, and finally to finish, because it is getting very cold. David says, and it's, it's an exhortation, you can almost read it as an exhortation to us. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Do you know what? When our time is done, on this earth at least, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will see David, the psalmist, dwelling there. Our family and the Lord will be there too. Best of all, we will see Jesus face to face. Are you looking forward to that? We're strengthened every day knowing that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Keep your eyes on Jesus.